You are listening to a message from Redemption Community Church, a life-giving church in Westchester County, New York. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or follow our messages online at redemptioncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the message. Today is going to be a good day. This is going to be fun. I feel like the Holy Spirit is going to breathe life. If you came in here feeling down or depressed or, or lonely or sad or, or sick, I feel like God's going to do a, a redemptive, freeing work today, and you're going to live, leave here uh, with renewed hope. I love this series that you're in right now called Counter Culture. Amy, can I ask you a question? Is that Jeremy behind the globe? Is that him? It looks like him. That's one of his things. I always see him doing that. But that guy looks like Jeremy. But I love this series uh, called Counter Culture. Uh, this, uh, this, this journey through studying through the Corinthian church. I love the Corinthian church. If you know anything about the Corinthian church, they were a messy, messy, messy church. There was division. There was immorality. And Paul had to bring strong word after strong word. Why? Because he loved them. But I think in so many ways, of all the, the books in the Bible, in the New Testament, of all the churches represented, I think the church at Corinth is most like us today. We're messy. Come on, somebody say we're messy. We're messy. Can we be honest? We're messy. We got issues. We're not perfect, right? But in the middle of their mess, in the middle of the strong word that Paul brought to the church at Corinth, man, it was, it was an experience. We, we see an expression of God's incredible love and grace and redemption and transformative power. Come on, these people, they, the good news is they didn't stay where they were. They changed. They let God do something incredible in their lives. Come on, I'm so glad that God loves us the way he finds us, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. He wants us to grow and to change and to become, I love what Pastor Craig Rochelle says, to become, to learn to live and love like Jesus lived and loved. That is, that should be our primary passion. And so we see this in the Corinthian church. I love this talk that we're in right now called counterculture, like the salmon swimming upstream because that's what they were created to do. That's where they thrive. That's where they breathe. That's where they, they, they actually, they actually uh, 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 become uh, who, what they were created to be. Someone say counterculture. This idea that when it comes to how we interact with the world around us, come on, God is, God's best work is not seeing in our comfort, but man, God does his best work when we are in conflicts. Come on, somebody. Walking with Jesus is not about comfort. Comfort is good. It's wonderful. We all want comfort, but really, God does his best work. Come on, God does his best work when we are in conflict. I, we tell our church life is a series of peaks and valleys. But there, how many of you know there are way more valleys than there are peaks? Because when we are in the peak season of our lives, when things are going great, we tend to get comfortable. We tend to take our foot off the spiritual gas and begin to coast. But when we are in the valley and when we're in conflict and when we're desperate, it's funny how conflict will bring us to our knees in pursuit of Almighty God. So God is not necessarily seen in our comfort, but in our conflict. And so I love the idea that we are unpacking this tension, that as believers, as Christ followers, we are called to march to, a, to the beat of a different drummer. Come on, come on. In fact, the beauty of following Christ is that the majority of spiritual growth happens not in our comfort zone, but rather in our conflict zone. Come on, someone say conflict, 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 conflict. How many remember, uh, I'm a child of the 90s, 80s. 
I remember in 1988, late 80s, later, uh, Nike, Nike somebody, uh, they had a, a, an ad advertising campaign that uh, we know now changed, basically changed the trajectory of their company and led to them in large part becoming the dominant force in uh, a company in athletic apparel worldwide. It was the just do it. Come on, someone say just do it. Remember that Just Do It campaign, uh, Nike, uh, Nike launched, and it's still, it's still in play today, just, just do it, you know, Christians as we are, so copycat-ish, and well, the, the, the young man after the first service said, Pastor Boyd, look, I got, I, I got the shirt on, and he said, just on the front, on the back, it said, God, I'm like, oh, church people, come on, Christians, it was, it was awesome, I loved it, but, 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 but Nike's strategy was to target every American uh, 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 race, Age, gender, with a campaign that targeted the thing that nobody really thought that they could do but wanted to do, to work out, to exercise, to get fit. They sold people the idea, the dream, the thought that everyone could be a great athlete. Come on, Nike was lying to us. But they, well, we all believe it, right? We, we buy the gear, we get the spandex, and we get the, 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 the thing on the head. And Just do it, y'all. Come on, we can be LeBron James. No, we can be Michael Jordan. Lie. We can be Wayne Rooney. Lie. Come on, but that's what they sold us. It was a classic, historic advertising campaign, really that was geared to empower people to do, to believe that they could do the difficult thing and get people out of their comfort zone. And if I put on this outfit, man, I can be like Mike. Just do it. It wound up being a catalyst for Nike becoming the dominant player in athletic apparel. But I really love that slogan. Come on, somebody say, just do it, just do it, just do it. I feel like when, when I hear it, it, it speaks to us on a very emotional and catalytic level. It, it could inspire us to believe that we can do the hard thing, that we can be great at this thing too, that we can overcome all our fears. Come on, someone say again, just do it, just do it, just do it. That slogan inspires me because as Christ followers, we are called not just to do the comfortable thing, but really we are called to do the difficult thing. The majority of our spiritual growth takes place outside of the comfort zone. Today, I want to talk about one of the most difficult and uncomfortable things for a Christ, that a Christ follower can do. In fact, as a pastor, uh, what, I, what I'm about to talk about might be one of the most difficult and uncomfortable things for even a pastor to talk about. In fact, can I, can I be honest today? I'm a pastor. I should be honest every day. <laughs> but uh, let me be honest right now, you know. I mean, but uh, Pastor Jeremy, I love his soul. I love his heart. He's a detailed, meticulous planner. He laid out the entire series weeks and months ago, and he sent me when he invited me to come preach. He, he Bodhi, I'm going to send you. And he gave me the whole, the whole thing, a file email, like three, four emails. He called me. And but as it just so happened to be, I got a little busy in Philly because Philly is rough. Come <laughs> on, somebody, and things are happening. And so I got busy, and I didn't really look at what passed. Don't tell him I said this, even though he's probably watching right now in Italy, so I know him. And uh, and I didn't look at his well thought out, well planned uh, manuscript for me to preach from until this past week Monday. <laughs> you know. 
And then when I opened the thing, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to redemption. I love redemption. They have great worship, great church. I love it. It's going to be fun. I'm going to have it. And I opened up the countercultural, yes. I love the idea, the concept. And I opened up, and it was 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I was like, what the heck, Jeremy? Why are you asking me to preach this? You know? And I was stressing out. You know, and I was like, man, I had to, had to work. I had to, had to work. I had to dig. I had to study. I had to get my theology right. I had to get all my concordances out. Like, just study, study. I had a rough week, y'all. Just trying to get ready for this sermon. I really finally got to a point. I'm like, I'm calling him now. I'm not coming. I'm not coming. I can't do this. I, I want to talk about joy, about healing, about love, about, about prosperity, y'all. Yes. No. <laughs> You know, he was I really but but God helped me, y'all. God helped me. Come on, make some noise. God helped me. It's difficult. I want to talk about today one about the most difficult things that we are called to do as believers. That most of us, probably if we're honest, would rather not do. But at the same time, it's one of the most life-giving things we could ever do. Something that stimulates spiritual growth, not only in us, but in our church and in those li- in the lives of believers around us. So I want to talk this morning about the call, someone say call, to judge or confront or discipline. Come on, that sounds like fun, right? Fellow Christ followers. That's the emphasis, fellow Christ followers. We are called to judge each other. Paul goes at length to explain to the Corinthian church in chapter 5, and at the end of this chapter, that we are not called to judge the world. We're called to love the world unconditionally. But when it comes to you and I, part of the same family, part of this incredible, amazing construct called church, the hope of the world, God's plan A, God's plan B, uh, light of the world, city set upon a hill whose light cannot be hid on a mission to rescue people from hell, from a future in hell, and populate and help them get to their place in heaven. When it comes to us, we are absolutely Absolutely called and empowered to uh, keep each other accountable in love so that our witness and our representation of Christ is not put at risk or compromised. Come on, can somebody say amen? Come on, somebody say just do it, just do it, just do it, just do it. I want to talk to you about why it's important, what happens when we don't do it, and maybe just maybe where we should start with this thing called judgments. Come on, someone say judgment. I can tell right now you're uncomfortable. Let's like, oh my good, why did I come to church today? You know, but, but can I promise you the payoff for it is out of this world. The spiritual growth that happens is incredible when we learn to do it right. And can someone say just do it? Why is this so uncomfortable? Talk about judgment or discipline or correction. Because no one likes conflict. Come on, show of hands. How many here love conflict? A good fight just gets me going in the morning, Pastor. That's why I fought my wife on the way here. That's why I fight my kids. Everything. No. No one likes conflict. In fact, if you're honest, we go out of our way to avoid it. Have you ever had to do something like me preaching this sermon that you'd rather not have to do? Maybe end a toxic relationship. Amen, somebody. Maybe have a hard conversation with your spouse. I hate having hard conversations with my wife. Why? Because she's always right. I'd rather do anything else. Babe, she's so sweet. Babe, 
She's from, she's from North Carolina. Babe, we need to talk. To me, that's like alarm bells. That's the house is on fire. I'm like, no, no, we don't need to talk. We're good. No, let's go out on a date. Let's go shopping. Let's go grocery shopping, which I hate almost as much. Like, I will do anything rather than have a hard conversation with Keisha because she's sweet, but she knows how to beat me up and get me acting right. I almost asked her to come out here and, 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 and teach in my place because she's so good at correcting me. <laughs> Baby, you come here and preach this, you know. Maybe an employee had a fire or you're wrestling with terminating a lazy employee. Have you ever had a hard decision that you've had to make or confront something and you'd rather not have to? Maybe something with your health. Maybe change your finance or your budget or finances. Have you ever turned a blind eye, buried your head in the sand, looked the other way, hoping that somehow, somehow this problem, this difficult conflict, confrontation would just work itself out. Come on, how many know those things never just work themselves out? They're always there. In fact, in many cases, if we don't deal with those situations, they wind up getting worse. Come on, somebody say amen to that. That's the scenario that the Apostle Paul introduces us to in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He's confronting the church, come on, about something they should have done, but for some reason they were reluctant to do so. He confronts the church. Emphasis, he's confronting the church about a sin that they have turned their blind eye to. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. He says this, I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something even the pagans do not do. Paul, when he writes this text, when he writes this letter to the church in Corinth, he is 300 miles away in Antioch, but the news of this scandal, of this situation has reached him, and you can tell he's boiling. He is, he is, he is, he's, he's, he's communicating in a, as he did with the Corinthian messy church in a very strong way. He said, I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on about among you. Something that even pagans don't do. I'm told that a man in your church is living in sin. That's King James or New Living code for, you know, being sexually intimate with his stepmother. Verse two, it says, then it says in verse 2, you are so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning in sorrow and shame. Then he says something incredibly radical. He says, you should remove this man from your fellowship. What he was saying, you got to get this joker out of here. Get him out. And that's tough to hear. Paul hears about what he calls uh, uh, un- unbelievable sin in the church and he begins to confront it. Uh, he, this sin was so bad that we, uh, we read that even the culture around them would not tolerate this. Roman culture, Roman law, uh, when it came to incest, was courts, was prison. It was, it was taboo even in the culture of Corinth. And Corinth, if you know anything about church history, they were, it was, it was, it was, it was an immoral society. They were known for prostitution. They were known for wild living. And so even in that wild culture, the church was more wild than they were. Come on, isn't that crazy? Specifically, Paul's calling them the Corinthians out because they are not only 
turning a blind eye to it. They're tolerating this sin. Interesting here that we have a picture of church acting worse than the world around them. How can we, how can a church, how can we be help to people when our lifestyle is worse than theirs? How can we be redemption? How can we be hope? How can we be joy? How can we bring people to the thing and the one they need the most when our witness is so compromised? Here's the thing. If we don't judge ourselves of our sin, the world will judge us. And they won't come. And they'll say we're hypocrites. And they will look at Christ and not see hope and not see deliverance and not see freedom. All because of how we represent. Can I tell you this? Your unsaved neighbor, your unsaved best friend, the, the, the God they know is the God that you show them. Come on, somebody. Come on. That, that's the reality. Is, it, it's, most people don't come, to, don't come to Christ because God is bad. It's because we have not represented him well enough. This is a whole different flow in the second service. In the first, there was all happiness and fun and laughter. <laughs> I love it, though. But why, but why, why, why was it that the, this Corinthian church, they, they turned a blind eye. They refused to, to acknowledge, to hold accountable. Uh, theologians speculate two reasons that I can find. Number one is um, to expose this sin as exposing sin goes, would have gotten really, really messy. Roman law called for a trial. It would have been a scandal. If it was in today's society, it would have been all over internet, you know, all over social media, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook. This is, this is not how to grow a church, right? It would have been a scandal. This is not what any pastor wants. It would have been easier just to ignore it. So maybe the church decided it was easier to ignore sin than to deal with it. But somebody once said, ignoring sin is like not paying your taxes. They're always going to find you. <laughs> you can't get away with that. Right? Anybody? Nobody? You can't. You may, you may, 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 may for a season, you might think you're, you, you're, 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 the IRS don't know where you live, but listen, the IRS knows where everybody lives in America and outside America too. You know, it's the same thing with sin. When you don't deal with it, when you don't confront it, when you don't confess it, the devil will find you. The devil will make you pay a price that you, would, you don't want to pay. He'll make you stay longer and go further away from God that you don't want to go. Another explanation is, is possibly that the Corinthian church ignored the incest and boasted that this man was right with God because of this man's high social status, his prominence. And they were excited to have such a prominent, wealthy individual as part of their con congregation. And so they were unwilling to confront him about his sin, about his incest, because of his social cultural standing. I think in many ways that this passage exposes the tension that maybe we all feel that the reality is it can be, it's much more comfortable to ignore sin than to confront it. Can I get amen, somebody? But the reality is ignoring, and you can write this down, ignoring sin in our lives, in our church, amongst our church family, has consequences. The Bible tells us, can a man take fire in his hands and not be burnt? But Paul was not an ignoring sin kind of guy, right? In fact, he's the opposite. He's the, I'm coming for you kind of guy. Because I love you. Because God has a plan for your life. And he rebukes them. And he commands them to correct their error. Specifically, he says that there's two things that they should mourn. 
Their hearts should be broken about the sin, about what they're witnessing, that they should mourn and repent and call out to God and ask God to help, ask God to revive, ask God to turn around. And secondly, they should excommunicate this man, kick him out of their church. Please note this, and this is critical to understand. Paul does not directly rebuke the man or the stepmother or his baby mama or his girlfriend or the person. No, he's, he, he, he's talking to the church for their lack of response to what they knew was going on. We see Paul making an incredibly strong judgment as an apostle and a spiritual father. And he tells the Corinthians, no, it's not okay. Get him out. In fact, in verse 5, he says this, then you must, everybody say must, throw this man out and, ha and hand him over to the devil. Come on, that's, that's rough. With a capital rough, right? That's tough. Get him out and give him to Satan. That's, that's hard. If you're like me and you read this, you might have some severe mental objections. Like, pastor, that seems harsh. That's crazy. That's not Christ-like. Wasn't Jesus a friend of sinners? Didn't he tell us not to judge others lest we be judged? Come on, maybe, like many Christians, you might say, come on, is it really any of our business what they're doing over there? Let God judge them. No. No. If you, if you think that way, then you're guilty of what the Corinthians were guilty of. They thought they knew better than God. And refuse to do what God told them to do. Here's our big idea this morning that I'm introducing or wrestling with today. It's this. If you truly care about our souls, if we truly care about people, if we truly care about the vulnerable, if we care about our neighbors, if we care about Christ's reputation, if we care about his mission, we have to be faithful to confront our brothers and sisters in love. Someone say, in love, in love. When we see sin in the church, even when we, we would rather not. Come on, somebody say, just do it, just do it, just do it. What I mean by that is that we, you and I, we are called, yes, to walk together in community, but not just in our comfort. We're also called to walk in our conflict. What I mean by that is Christian community is not just about comfort. It's also especially about conflict. Today, I want to unpack and present to you this uncomfortable truth, idea of judging your fellow believers, confronting them. I want you to show you with one thought, why it's so important that we embrace this countercultural trait. And maybe, just maybe, where to start. Because it's not easy. Someone say, just do it. Here's the thought that I shared this morning. We do it. Why do we do Why do we have to embrace this? We do it for the offending brother or sister. What I mean is the reality is this type of judgment, this type of confrontation, this type of, of correction is an act of grace. And love. Notice as a correction, not criticism. Criticism just points about and talks about what's going on over there. Correction says, no, let's, let's talk about it. Let's you get in the board and say, here's why it's wrong. Here's why. And you begin to wrestle it out and pray it out and cry it out and weep it out with that person until they repent. The reality of this type of judgment is an act of grace and love. It's for their own good. You're actually helping them. You're protecting their future. It may not look like it, but it actually is. Here's the thing. We have to understand that the heart throughout Scripture, when, even when our Father judges, judges us, the heart of biblical judgment is not destruction, it's protection. 
It's not punishment, it's a path to grace. It's not damnation, it's redemption. It's not condemnation, it's conviction. It's not bondage, it's freedom. It's countercultural. It might be one of the most countercultural things you can do. Our culture wants to hide, hide this sin or celebrate this sin, but God calls us to confront our sin. Can somebody say amen? Can we, let me show you in verse, in verse 5, Paul says this, Then you must throw this man out and hand him over to sin. And then he said, so that, so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. You know, judgment is kind of like parenting. And do you have any parents in the house today? Come on, parents, make some noise. Yeah, whoo, parenting, parenting is not easy, y'all. The struggle is real. It's the reason why I have no hair on my head. Come on, somebody. But judging fellow Christians kind of like parenting. You know, that's what I mean. Number one, uh, you don't get to correct other people's kids. Like that kid you saw in the grocery store acting up that you really wanted to snatch out of there. It's not your job to do that. You only get to parent the kids that you actually gave birth to or that you adopted in the court of law. Right? You know, you get, you get to parent, though, you get to, you, get to, you get to parent your kids. The same way we don't get to judge the world, we only get to judge our family. Number two, you regularly have to discipline or correct your kids in love so that they won't go down the wrong path. Like, we, I don't know about you, but I'm always judging my kids. I was judging my daughter the other day. I said, you, you, you are not leaving this house wearing that outfit. I don't care. I'm, I'm a pastor. You're a pastor's daughter. You're not leaving, pastor's kid. You're not leaving this house. I don't care. I said, why, daddy? said, because you're six years old. Pull your skirt down. <laughs> six year old. That girl, pray for her, Amy. Pray for her. Elise. You're always judging. That's what parenting is. You're judging. So that, so that they don't go down the right path. So they don't make the wrong friends. They don't, hopefully don't make poor choices. The Bible says, train a child up in the way that he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart. Parenting is judging. But we do it because we love them, right? And we care. We want them to get to the future that we dream for them to have. Number three is, is your kids never, capital N, appreciate correction in the moment. I don't know about you, but my kids have never, ever, ever thanked me for judging or correcting them. Right? I think about my life, and in the moment, growing up as a young kid, all the things I did and all the time my mom stopped me from going to that party or doing this thing or that, and that, that helped shape me and keep me on the path, and her prayers brought me. I'm a product of my mother's judging and correction. Now I look back and I thank her. I didn't realize it at the time, but she was protecting my future. Here's the thing. You can write this down. Not all pain is bad and not all discomfort is of the devil. Just because something feels bad doesn't mean it's not good for you. Just because something doesn't feel good doesn't mean it's not God. There's another word for, 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 for parenting or judging, and it's called pastoring. That's why we all need good pastors. That's why you can't stop coming to church because the pastor's job is to, is to lovingly through the word of God and to shepherd you, to correct you, to help you get to where you need to be. 
to help you fulfill God's greatest dream for your life. God's greatest dream, you may want to write this down, God's greatest dream for your life is not a house or a great job or even a great marriage. God's greatest dream for your life is that you make it to heaven. That's it. And once you figure that out, everything else makes sense. Make it to heaven. Come on, someone say, just do it. Just do it. The pastor, I get it. And I'll end with this. Where do I start? Because there's so many thoughts, there's so many ideas when it comes to uh, walking this out. But I want to just show you where I think we need to start. Where do we start? Recognize this call that we have to judge, to correct in love. But where do we start? Because it is so difficult. I think the best place to start, and the only place you can start, is to start by judging yourself. Here's the thing, don't miss it. Paul was confronting them, the church. He was confronting their apathy towards sin. He was confronting their attitudes towards God, towards towards the people that God has entrusted to them. The thing is, if we don't effectively judge ourselves, then we can't judge anybody else. We do have the authority, and we are called to be to judge and hold each other accountable. But the first people, the first person that we need to judge is ourselves. If you try to judge another believer while still holding on unconfessed, unrepentant to your own sin, you become a hypocrite, and hypocrites lose their credibility. Let me show you. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 8. Paul's talking about the Passover and this new life that we have in Christ. He says this, So let us celebrate the festival, not with the old bread of wickedness and evil, but with the new bread. Someone say new bread of sincerity and and truth. Paul is speaking metaphorically and he's referencing and painting a picture of our new lives in Christ. And he's showing us how God wants us to live. And he's beginning to show us where we need to start on this journey to accountability. And he uses the word here in this text, the word sincerity. Can someone say sincerity? And it's, 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 it's a word that's only used six times in the entire New Testament by the Apostle Paul. And four times he references it in, in, in his letters to the Corinthians. This word is a powerful word. And it literally means to be judged by the sunlight. To be judged by sunlight. It's a reference to the oriental bazaars or marketplaces of that day where pottery or glass was displayed intentionally in dimly lit uh, stalls or rooms so that the potential buyer on first impression would not be able to see or discern any flaws, any cracks, any, anything wrong with the product that they are about to buy. It was a deceptive way of selling something. In fact, many marketers or stores will still do that today. You go into a store and it's super dark, so you can't really see what you're buying, right? But wise customers would hold the pottery up to the sun. So the sun would expose all the cracks, all the flaws, all the deficiencies. Paul's use of this word is metaphorical, referring to a person who who exhibits transparency in honesty, in purity, in lifestyle. Paul is saying to us, Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, judge yourself. Hold your your lives up to the light of Christ. Let the light of truth and who he is and his mercy begin to judge you. 
So today, man, as, as we close, as we end, man, I feel like today will be a great day. Come on, right in the middle of this series, in the middle of summer, to begin to judge ourselves. Come on, someone say, judge yourself. Judge yourself. Just do it. Just do it. Maybe today you want to begin to judge your attitude towards sin. Paul writes to the Corinthians. He said, you should mourn. You should weep. You should fall on your face and ask God for help because of what's, when you see what's happening. What's your attitude to sin? What's your attitude to the sin in your own life? What's your attitude to dishonesty and pornography and adultery? What's the attitude? What's your attitude? Does your heart break? Can I tell you, I got to believe our Heavenly Father, His heart breaks over our sin, over our brokenness. Sin is no joke. It's the reason why people, God's people, are missing God's plan. And it's the reason why people are going to hell. Sin, unconfessed sin, unrepentant sin. What is our attitude towards sin? Our sin, starting with ourselves. Paul said, if we say we have no sin, we're only deceiving ourselves. Where, 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 what is our attitude towards our own sin? Maybe today you want to judge your attitude towards this construct, this family called the church. Do you care enough about it to speak up when something is wrong? Do you care enough about it to give to it, to support it, to serve it? Knowing that the church is God's plan to rescue the entire world. Maybe today you want to judge your attitude towards leadership, towards your pastors. When they're judging you, when they're teaching you, when they're loving you, when they're giving you a word to save your souls. Maybe you want to judge your attitude towards Pastor Jeremy and Pastor Amy. Ask God to forgive you. Ask God, I'm sorry. Maybe you want to judge your attitude. Come on, let's stand to our feet. We're going to pray. Maybe you want to judge your attitude towards the lost. Do you care about the people that God cares about? Do you care about the people in your city, your neighborhoods, who don't know Jesus, whose, 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 whose ability to respond to Christ is being either a cat, your, your life, our lives, our church, either a catalyst or a hindrance to what God wants to do? Maybe today you need to judge your attitude towards God, God himself because that's what the Corinthians, well, that was their major problem. They thought they knew better than God. They, they, they had their plan, they had their perception, and they thought, what we want to do, what we need, is more important than what God wants from us. You can never leave, live a countercultural life if you don't prioritize what God wants. And that is, that is where we got to wrestle it out, where we got to repent. We got to ask, we got to judge ourselves. God, I'm sorry. Can I challenge you right now to bow your heads and heart? We're going to sing a song and we're going to worship God. Can I encourage you? Don't leave this room without doing business with God. Repentance leads to revival. Repentance leads to renewal. Pastor, how do, I, how do I judge myself? You repent when the Holy Spirit convicts you of something that you need to repent of, a change. Like the Apostle Paul, his goal in confronting the Corinthian church was change, was freedom, was spiritual growth. I feel that that's what God is wanting to explode in our lives and at our churches all over this nation starting right now, but today right here. Can I challenge you this morning as we worship, as we sing, do some real work with God. I'm sure, I'm, I'm confident of it, that the Spirit of God is moving throughout this place. And He's convicting, He's showing us things gently and lovingly. And He's asking us to repent and say, God, I trust your way. I trust you. I, I surrender. I submit. I, I mourn. 
Father, help us today. Help us be the people that you created us to be. Help us be the church. There's more. There's more people who need you. More families who yet to come to redemption. There's more campuses to start. There's more services to open. There's more teams to birth. But it all starts, I believe, with repentance. So, Father, we repent for thinking that we know better than you. For not loving people enough. For hiding our own sin. Father, I pray, God, that today we will judge, we will be judged by the sunlight, S-O-N, the light of Christ. In the name of Jesus. And God, as you judge us, you bring wholeness, you bring healing and deliverance in Jesus' name. Come on, somebody say amen. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. If you'd like to connect with us or learn more about our church, please visit us online at redemptioncommunitychurch.org. We hope you can listen or join us next week.